So the, the church in Thessalonica was a miracle church. Paul had literally preached there, it says on three consecutive, well it doesn't say consecutive, on three Sabbath days. And that's all. It's pretty good, you know. I mean, John is pretty good, but I mean, if he was preaching you know, three consecutive Sundays. Um, so, it was a miracle. We don't know how, we don't know whether they were three consecutive Sundays or what they were, but anyway, they, he only preached on three, three Sabbaths. And then persecution came very rapidly, and he was with Silas and Timothy, and they had to flee. So they had very little time with these people. So it was a young church. Then Paul went to Berea, which is near there, and he was persecuted there as well, and he had to leave quickly. And then he went to Athens, and he was on his own there, so he didn't stay very long. And then he went to Corinth. When he, went, when he was in Corinth, he had time to think. He met up with Silas and Timothy. He was there in Corinth for a year and a half at least. And he wrote to the church. He was concerned about the, Th- the church in Thessalonica, the Thessalonians. And he heard that they'd been influenced by false teaching. They're young Christians, and they, one of the teachings that John's been teaching about was that the day of the Lord had already come. We would think that rather strange. That seems strange to our eyes or our ears. You know, they were, but they were, they were very young Christians. They didn't know the word, and they were concerned that perhaps Jesus had already come back, and some of them had actually died in the meantime, and they were worried that these people might have, where were the people, had they gone to hell because they, or what was going to happen to any of them. So that was one of the things. Another thing was that idleness, not working, was quite, seemed to be quite acceptable in the culture of the church. And Paul was concerned about that. And maybe it was just because they thought that if the world was going to end soon, um, or very soon, or what's the point of working? Or maybe it was a cultural thing, you know, work's boring. <laughs> maybe they thought work was boring, and um, so maybe it was to do with that. But we don't know. But either way, there were, seemed to be a lot of people, and Paul seemed to be very concerned about the problem of idleness. So I just want to show you the plan of this talk, that firstly, honourable toil is, is good and is God's plan for us. Secondly, that we need to discipline the brother who is, who is idle, well, and the sister or sister. But our Lord, our God, is the Lord of grace and peace. So Paul says in verse 6, I'm going to have all the verses on the screen. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and doesn't live according to the teaching you received from us. Paul is always concerned about people or anything that can cause divisions in the church. And these things, you know, idleness is a bit like immorality or anything like that. It can cause... It can cause divisions, it can cause it like a, spread like a kind of cancer within the church. And in, in Romans, Paul had written to the church in, the Roman, in Rome and said, watch out for those who cause divisions, keep away from them. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, don't associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer or lots of different things like that. Because we don't want sin spreading in the church. And of course we need to understand very clearly that we're talking about inside the church. Outside the church, of course it's very good for us to have friends of all sorts. We want to meet, we want to get to know our neighbours, we want to know people who go to our children's schools and 
and we've got to have friends of every kind who may well be immoral or may be unemployed. But inside the church, these habits can be a, a great hindrance to maturity. And Paul wrote that a little leaven works through the whole batch of dough. And this, um, this, this can sound a bit strange to our ears. A little leaven, a little yeast, can work through the whole batch of dough, like through a whole loaf of bread, which it obviously does. But actually it can be very real. Before we joined this church, Helene and I went, we used to go to a big Baptist church, which is uh, thriving, in a way. But um, we, they weren't uh, teaching the gospel very well, so we and then we, a visiting speaker came and, and told us about another Baptist church which was sort of dying. only had about 16 people going to it. And uh, we thought maybe we'd go and see if we could help sort of thing. Um, that was our simple idea. And <laughs> when we got there, we found that everything was broken, really. That the church was basically... The pastor himself was new and keen. He was a sort of retired pharmacist who was and but the, the church, everything in the church was run by three ladies uh, one lady's husband was an unbeliever the other, the other lady's husband never came we never met him the third lady was a godly lady but nothing was functioning there was a man a lovely man actually in the church who was in his, in his 70s who had been going to the church for 70 years but he still hadn't decided whether he believed in God or not so it sounds funny, but it's, it's very sad. And there was a tremendous amount of unbelief. I remember I was doing a Bible study, in fact, um, for out of one, Psalm 139. Um, we were looking at, you know, your eyes formed my... You, you knew me before I was born. You, your eyes saw my unformed body. You formed me in the womb. And then a, a lady who was listening sort of burst out and said, but it's all a fairy tale. Mm. <laughs> you know, and... Um, so that was the way things were, really. So there's a great belief in uh, evolution, and there was a great unbelief, yeah. let's say. Yeah. I don't have to say anymore. But so that the we we saw for it with our own eyes how a little leaven, once it's allowed to grow, can destroy everything. And the church has now closed, in fact. But we decided, well, the Lord brought us to Seventh Church. We hadn't heard of Seventh Church at the time, and we're very glad we discovered it. But. We talk about being harsh with a brother who might be, in this case, idle or maybe might be immoral, whatever it is. If the brother is actually expelled from the church, however, and de deprived of the sweet fellowship that we have, but covered in prayer, then that can, and very often does, and can anyway, lead to searching of the soul and to repentance. And I'll come back to this later. So that all church discipline is done with a view to love and to a view to restoration. Mm. So going to verse 7, Paul says, For you yourselves know <coughs> how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you. Um, and elsewhere he writes that you should follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He said that to the Corinthian church. Paul, it's, I mean, I could, never, I could never say that, you must follow my example. But Paul was special, he knew he was anointed anointed apostle, anointed especially called by the Lord. Um, and Paul was concerned to set aside that he could say, look, I'm an apostle, you've got to look after me, you've got to provide for my needs. But he was more concerned to be an example 
for the church, the people in the church, and that they would follow his example as he followed Christ. In verse 8 he said, we didn't even eat anyone's food without paying for it. If you asked Paul out to supper, he would want to give you something for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, labouring and toiling, so we would not be a burden to any of you. In the previous letter, in the first Thessalonian letter, he had written, as apostles of Christ we could have been a burden to you. And he also said, we worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. So he was most concerned that because they'd come, as you might say, initially visiting strangers, they certainly didn't want to be a burden. So let's look at what Paul means when he says he was working night and day. Actually, we're not told what Paul was working at in Thessalonica, but we know that after he went from there to Berea and then Athens and then Corinth, we are told what he was doing in Corinth. Um, it says in Acts 18, it says, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and there he met a Jew named Aquila with his wife Priscilla. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogues, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So the Sabbath was on a Saturday. It sounds as if Paul was working from Sunday to Friday, or maybe not, I don't know. Uh, but every Saturday, Sabbath, he was reasoning, trying to persuade, he was working in the church. So he worked really hard. And this brings us to the idea of tent maker mission, because if you, if you feel called to be a missionary, um, you, there are countries which you can't go to, you can't to apply to the Af- Afghanistan embassy and say, I'd like to go as a missionary. I don't think you can. If you, went to, if you want to go to an Islamic country or a Muslim country or even India, you may not be allowed to go as a missionary. But you can go as a teacher, you can go in business. There are lots of ways that you can go. And of course, it's a great advantage to have a job. And I know that many people here have done that, just that, gone to China and other places. And you can live in the... You, you've got a, you can get a visa, you can live in the country, you can have a job, you've got a place in the community. The dangers are, of course, that you can get seriously overworked then this can lead to fatigue and ma- making mistakes. And if the job folds up, of course, you may have to leave. I'm mentioning all this because it mentions that Paul was a tent maker, and because this is very dear to my heart. But the only problem is that we're not talking about this today. But the pluses of tent makers are very real, and the minuses are also very real. So let's come back to Paul. Because Jesus had actually given instructions that the worker deserves his wages. Is that a bit? And Paul had himself written in, 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 uh, to the Corinthians that the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So Paul, in other words, had every right to claim that because he was an apostle, they should, they should look after him. But he was more concerned to be an example. You know, with these conflicting things, in the one way he can be an example, example of love, in the other way he can assert his rights as an apostle, he was more concerned to preach the gospel of love. And of course there's the example of Jesus. Uh, in Luke tells us that as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere 
to lay his head. Is it truly amazing what the Son of Man suffered for us? We, we, oh, I mean, I tend to think purely that about the crucifixion, which of course was very real and an incredible, an incredible amount of suffering. But in fact, Jesus spent his whole life, didn't he, in suffering for us and making sure that he also would not be a burden for us. It says in Philippians that he, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. This is not a new screen. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. So it was wonderful, the, the God that we believe in, the God that we have put our trust in. And then we can think about the way Jesus worked. Um, he's, he told the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders in John's Gospel, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. In fact, they were talking about whether he should be working on the Sabbath. And he ordained the Sabbath for us, but it seems not for himself, because he was always working. <laughs> but he seemed to be, as we read the Gospel, we're not often told exactly how he worked, are we? We're not told exactly, but he seemed to be always working. He seemed to be never in a rush. He wasn't like us, he wasn't like me. Never in a rush. He made time for people. We know when he spoke to the woman at the well, I think it's John chapter 4, he was very tired, having been on a long journey. But still, he still found time to talk to her about eternal life. It led to a great revival, didn't it? And then Mark tells us about one time when he was going to heal a man with a withered hand, and it was again on the Sabbath. And he was deeply distressed at the attitude of the, of the religious leaders, who were more concerned about working on the Sabbath than they were about showing love and kindness. Mm. But he still healed the man. We know he was actually weeping and physically great, very, very distraught when Lazarus died at the awfulness of death itself, which was not meant to be, of course. But he still raised him from the dead. But above all these things, he conducted all his mission, didn't he, under the shadow of the cross, which none of his disciples knew anything about. Although all those three and a half years, or maybe the 33 years, he must have known a lot of the time that he was going to undergo this terrible suffering, this terrible persecution, which always lay ahead of him. And it he, he showed such love, such concern for other people all the time. And then he said, of, of course, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And we're here in servants, the church, the church of the servant, and to give his life as a ransom for many people. So we give you thanks. We thank the Lord for what he has done. I thought it would be relevant just to look quickly at work. <laughs> what, what, is, what should godly work look like? It seems relevant to this passage. Uh, just, just very briefly, I plan to look at this. So we're told in Genesis chapter 1 that man is should to rule over the animals and the earth. We're told in chapter 2 that 
he should work and take care of the garden. So that's agriculture, if you like, horticulture, agriculture, farming. Um, in chapter 2, we're also told that he should name the animals. I think we can think of that as the beginning, beginning of science. Just the very, very beginning of science and technology. And then in Genesis chapter 1, again, they were told to be fruitful and fill the earth. In Exodus 20, though, we're told that we should do all our work in six days. We should not work seven days a week. We should get all our work. It's important to finish all our work and not work on the Sabbath, but keep it holy. I know it can be very difficult for people who have to work on Sundays, which includes if you work in a supermarket, if you work in the, in the hospital, if you're a pastor of a church, you have to work on Sunday. And, uh, but then we should have another day. So, I mean, it's just important to have a day. I know for students, it's very often they have assignments which have to be handed in on Monday morning, and so it's very, certainly very tempting to work on Sunday. But if possible, to, keep it, to have a Sabbath on a different day, that's the main thing. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about godly work in the next few minutes, and, but I just want to make it clear, I'm not meaning at all to exclude. If your work is a, primarily a homemaker, a homeschooler, you're working at, you don't feel you're getting paid for what you're doing, you're bringing up children, well, there is no work higher than this. You're bringing up the next generation. Thank you. I'm so, I'm so grateful for Helene that she chose to do that and to step away from medical work to bring up our children. I'm so, I'm so grateful, honestly. But it just so happens that Paul is not talking about this right here, so I'm not talking about that right now. But there's no, you don't have, there's no calling any higher than that. So we're told in Proverbs, it says in Proverbs, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. Mm-hmm. I.e. the skillful man will always somehow get known. You know, people will always know that Ron makes lovely you know, pies and things. People, you, if you're skillful at things, you will get known. Then we're also told in Proverbs, you've got to be methodical. Finish your outdoor work, get, get your fields ready. After that, build your house. In other words, we have to do things in the right order. We have to plan. We can't build the house until the fields are sorted. We don't want a tree growing up in the middle of the living room. <laughs> then Paul writes to Timothy about slavery. So people, in the, if you work for the NHS, you know, slavery. So it's all, it's all, very, it's all very relevant, you know. Um, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect. So we've got to be respectful. He writes to Titus in the same subject, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. To try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they'll make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Paul is always very concerned about the effect of everything that we do, the effect that, that everything we do has on the Gospel and the spread of the Gospel. It's important for us always to bear that in mind. So, godly work, so far, we've so far seen, it needs to be skillful, diligent, methodical, respectful, pleasing, trustworthy. I think we could say a good rule would be to be a, a blessing to, my, or to one's employer. I don't feel I was a good example in many ways. I, when I was young, I was extremely uh, objectionable and... Never mind. But be a, be a blessing to your employer. 
It makes all the difference. We can think of the example of Joseph in the Bible, how he was a blessing to so many people. He was a blessing to Potiphar, and then in the, in the prison, the prison, the guy in the prison felt he could leave everything to Joseph, and then eventually the king. You know, so he was he was a great blessing. But there's something, something about Daniel. <coughs> I thought I'd look in a little bit more detail before we leave this aspect of this, because the example of Daniel is very interesting. Now, we all know, you all know about the lion's den, don't you? But do we? Why was he put in the lion's den? Well, you're going to say it's because of his faith. But was it? (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to read just six verses. I know this is not from our passage, but I think it's relevant. There was a king called Darius. He was the king of Media and Persia. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps, they're people like provincial local governors, to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional uh, qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So you all know the story, as I said. So we're not going to go into that anymore. But the king was enormously upset. Sorry. The king was enormously upset. Obviously Daniel was very reliable, trustworthy, we're told, not corrupt, not negligent. And the king wanted to promote him to be in charge of the kingdom. And that's really why the, when the trouble started. And the king was tricked. They played a trick on him, the other guys, into condemning, condemning Daniel. He forgot that Daniel was a, was a believer. Into condemn, condemning Daniel to the lion's den. And the, being put in the lion's den was quite dramatic. We think of it as in opening the gate. You know, you see these, there might have been these, these lion things in, in Africa or South Africa, or maybe here. And you know, they open the door and put a bit of meat in and everything, and the lions are just there and everything, it's fine. <laughs> uh, but Daniel was actually thrown into the lion's den, you know. And it wasn't funny. But the king was, that evening, he was, his last words to Daniel before the night fell, anyway, was, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Mm. And we know the kings couldn't sleep a wink. He was so annoyed with himself, feeling he was so stupid, signing that thing, but he couldn't, well, despite his great power, he couldn't rescue him. And then he's there, probably four in the morning, just as soon as with any light, saying, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, has he been able to rescue you? And Daniel said, yes, I'm fine. <laughs> oh, great. Oh. And Daniel says, oh, king, live for, for And Daniel's very respectful. My God, shut the love, sorry, shut the mouths of the lions, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done you... Sorry, nor have I ever 
done any wrong before you, O king. So Daniel was quickly rescued. Of course, this was a very bad moment for the other men. Because mm. Daniel's, the fact the lions had not touched him was really like a very obvious, a very obvious statement that Daniel was innocent. So they had, didn't have any multi-million pound inquiries, you know, no lasting only a couple of years, get the right peer to take it, cherries and everything until they were just forgotten. It was immediate justice and they, they with their families, wives and children, were all thrown into the den, as you know. Terrible. But why I'm coming to all this is that the king then wrote to all the people in that massive kingdom. In every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and endures forever. He, he rescues and he saves. So Daniel had such an extraordinary influence. We don't get the impression that Daniel was the sort of man who was always telling people about his, his God. We don't get that impression. Of course we don't really know. But we, we know that he had a great influence through his secular work. So we see in Daniel that he was skillful, diligent, methodical, all these things. Respectful, pleasing, trustworthy, but also humble. I was just thinking that I, when I was working in the hospital, I knew a lot of people who were very good at their work. Extremely good. But they weren't always humble. There's some people in the audience who are all of those things, including humble. So humility is very important. And I found it interesting to think of people that I've known. I worked with a, a very keen Christian doctor who used to read the Bible rather than going to clinics. And that's not, that's not a good testimony. I, we, had an we had a Christian typist who used to type Christian letters when she was supposed to be typing letters for patients. That's not a good... You know, Daniel wouldn't have done that. But I do remember three... Well, I was going to say young. They were young to me. Uh, doctors who were known to be Christians. They didn't talk much about but somehow you knew that they were. One of them used to read Scripture Union notes and things in the coffee time and had notes, you know, read the Bible. No, nothing, nothing secret about it. But their work was so good, so caring and humble and respectful that their influence was very strong, you know, it was very strong. So I just want to say there's little things about being a Christian and what, what godly, not that I've got any super um, wisdom, but I think the Bible tells us these things about godly, godliness in the workplace. Let's go back then to our passage and talk about laziness. Because Paul says in verse 10, when we were with you, we gave you this, this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. That is tough stuff, isn't it? Proverbs is quite funny about people who are lazy. There's a proverb which says, as a door turns on its hinges, so the sluggard turns on his bed. Just imagine sort of going... <laughs> you know. And another proverb says, that there's a lion outside. I've been murdered in the streets. I can't go to work. It's much too dangerous. Some of the cars are going in at 60 miles an hour. It's not safe. Any excuse. Of course, we have to have... We have to have sympathy for people who can't work. That's a totally different thing. It's, I'm so glad in this country we have benefit, the benefit system. We, we have to have that. Some people physically can't work. We have to 
That's a different thing entirely. We're talking about idleness, don't we? So in verse 11, Paul says, we hear that some of you are idle. They're not busy. They're busy bodies. So he's got a play on words. Just, there is a play on words in English, isn't there? You talk, somebody's busy, somebody, somebody else is not busy, they're a busy body. They're not really busy, they're just going all around, you know, how are you getting on, how are you getting on, going to this house, that house and everything. Busy bodies. And it seems to be interesting, I don't know any Greek, really, don't be fooled. I don't know any Greek. But there is a word, it seems to be the same thing in Greek, that the word for working is agasmenus. And the word for being a busybody is peri-agasmenus. Those peri means going round. So you're not really working, you're just going round and uh, getting involved with other people. And Paul writes to the young widows in a special group when he writes to Timothy. Not only do they become idlers, they also become gossips and busybodies saying things that they ought not to. That also probably sounds a bit harsh, but maybe he's just observed this in his own life. So what's the solution to idleness? Well, Paul makes it sound very simple. Such persons we command and encourage in the Lord to do their work quietly and earn their own living. One of the dangers of idleness is that we need structure. I think we all need structure in our lives, don't they? And lack of structure can bring disaster. And there's another very interesting, very sad example in the Bible of David. He will know all about it, and I'm not going to spend time on it, but just a little time. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it tells us about King David. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So I'm not told why he didn't go, but it seems strange that the time when kings go off to war, it sounds ghastly. I hope the war wasn't just for fun. I mean, but if it was, whatever it was, it sounds if David should have been there, should have been there telling Joab what to do, you know. And then one evening, he didn't have enough to do, and he got up from his bed and walked around. And you know the story. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. bathing. And we know that it led to adultery, led to murder, led to great sadness. The little baby died. Three of David's other sons died later. And the sword never departed from his house. Also, he was always under the thumb of this general Joab, uh, who knew the, the whole truth. And yet David was a godly man. He loved the Lord. He was usually very active, but he allowed himself to be idle. He, didn't, he allowed himself not to have any structure in his life for that period of time. And, and the, the, devil, <coughs> the devil got into his life. So Paul tells us in verse 13, So as for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. And he writes to the Galatians, Let us not, let us not become weary in doing good for the... At the proper time, we'll reap a harvest if we, don't, if we do not give up. It's very easy to give up, but if we remember that somehow the Lord will always allow us to reap a harvest, then it helps us to be encouraged. In the church office, it says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We can't always see the results, but there will be a harvest. And whatever we do, whether in word or deed, we should do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus.
So I've said a lot about work. Now let's get back to this question of disciplining the person who might not be working and might be straying in some other ways. Paul says, if anyone does not obey, in verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction, which is about idleness, in this, in this letter, take special note of him. Don't associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. And again, it does sound harsh, doesn't it? It does feel harsh. Don't associate with him. I mean, that's, that's tough. But church discipline is always aimed at restoration. And then he says, don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Because church discipline can degenerate, can't it? You know, somebody, is, um, somebody wants to form a... I was just talking to somebody in the break, in fact, who mentioned about divisions and things in, in another church. And that's always sad to hear. But in church, if, there's, if there needs to be church discipline, it can de- degenerate into taking sides and things like that. So as long as it's made clear that the person's not an enemy, but they're a brother or a sister in need. So do we have any examples in the Bible of this? Well, I think we do, because you probably know in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote, wrote about this immoral man who was living with doing immoral things that he shouldn't be doing and recommending that they expelled him from the church. And in 2 Corinthians, we, very, we read the very glad news that he has repented. And then Paul was saying, well, you must welcome him back again. Of course you must welcome him. There are other examples, because Mark, who, Mark who wrote the Mark's Gospel, he just deserted Paul at an earlier stage in his life. And Paul was not keen to take him on again. But Barnabas had more of a soft heart, and he took him, and they went to Cyprus. And Barnabas was known to be the great encourager. And we know that Paul, uh, sorry, we know that Mark later wrote his gospel, Mark's gospel. And we know that Paul wrote to him later and said, get, get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. So everything had been, had been settled between Paul and, and uh, Mark. And of course, our Lord was so kind to Peter as well, wasn't he? When Peter had denied our Lord, but Jesus reinstated him after, he'd, uh, after his resurrection. And they had a barbecue together on the beach and said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, follow me. <laughs> now if you look at the beginning of the letter, it says, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, to Paul's letters always start that way. It always says, grace and peace to you. This letter is going to finish the way it started with peace and grace. In verse 16 he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself at all times, sorry, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. Why do you say, why do you say at all times and in every way? Well, we've been justified through faith. Since we've been justified through faith, we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Instead of being God's enemies, we can have peace with God. And of course we can have peace at all times. And this is a peace that can replace our fears. You remember this group of people in, Thessal- in the church in Thessalonica? They were anxious about the, that the world had ended. And people were, you know, they were frightened, anxious about that. But peace, this peace can replace any fears we'll have about the Lord's coming. We can have peace in the midst of persecution. So that's why he says we can have peace at all times. 
and peace in every way. And of course, our Lord is the Prince of Peace, so he knows what he's talking about. And Paul, then, why does he send, say, talk about his handwriting? And he doesn't talk about my handwriting. But he says, Paul, I, Paul, write this letter in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark of all my letters. This is how I write. But maybe, maybe the church, maybe somebody had written a false letter to the church and got them all worried about all these things, you know, that the end of the day, the day of the Lord had already come. So we don't know, but maybe there'd been a false letter. So Paul wanted to assure them that it was definitely, this letter was coming from him anyway. In fact, he's, Paul did that before. At the end of First Corinthians, he also wrote, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. I mean, he, he did it in other letters. So he did that to assure them that it was definitely him writing. So the Lord is the Lord of peace and grace. And the, then he f- ends by saying, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's so easy for us, I find, to think of grace as something a bit feeble. Mm. That's terrible. You know, would you say the grace, please? You know, it's not that at all. I mean, grace is a, a thing of great power, isn't it? Paul... To Paul, grace was... Paul, remember he had this thorn in his flesh? We don't know what it was, but he suffered... He suffered greatly and prayed earnestly for healing. Something that we don't know, something... Something in his eyes, something... Pain, we don't know. But Jesus told him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul wrote, that therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. I'm going to give a confession. So I used to have a wrong idea about weaknesses. <clears throat> if I woke up feeling tired, which I frequently did, I'd say, I would think to myself, well, today's useless. I'll just look forward to tomorrow. You know? I won't be able to do anything worthwhile today. I'm exhausted. But that's wrong. We must pray that the Lord will give us his power, which is much better than our power. And so in days when we feel useless, we can be more useful. Must be the, that must be the reason why he was not healed. Because Paul was so amazingly useful, despite he had this thorn in the flesh. So if we commit each day to the Lord, we can. I've, I've seen this in my life now, though I didn't see it before. We, we tell God about our weakness, uh, ask him for it, put, replace it with his strength. So we can all have this same grace through faith. We can all have uh, this same peace from the Prince of Peace. We can all have grace from the Lord of Grace. Shall we pray? Lord, I thank you for this wonderful word, this, this message, Lord, about your peace, your grace, your work. Thank you for what you've done, Lord. We pray that you'd fill us with your peace and your grace and your word uh, this day and every day. And we ask it in your name. Amen.